The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I'm thrilled to be kicking off season seven of the show. In between seasons, we conducted a poll asking for suggestions on guests for this season, so I'm particularly happy to be bringing you one of those requested voices. Doug Holtz Eakin is an economist and the current president of the American Action Forum, a right of center think tank focused on economic, domestic, and fiscal policy issues. Before founding AAF in 2009, Holtz Eakin held a number of high level policy positions, including as the director of the Congressional Budget Office and as the chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Listeners, you asked for an economist who could talk about a carbon tax, and I'm so happy to deliver. And not only am I happy to deliver an economist who can talk about a carbon tax, but one that can talk about it in language that is easy to understand. So stay tuned. My conversation with Doug Holtz Eakin is coming up next. Welcome back, listeners. You asked, I responded. Joining us today, Doug Holtzikin. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Great, great privilege. So as um, as I mentioned to you before we got recording, listeners requested an economist, and some of them requested you by name, come on the show and talk about the carbon tax from an economist's perspective. And so, you know, I was just thinking about my own journey with climate policy. And I remember even before you founded the American Action Forum, that you were probably the first right of center thought leader to really be publicly supportive of a carbon tax. So how did you, what was your journey? How did you land on the carbon tax as the right climate policy? Uh, well, in, in the mid '90s, I was an academic. I was a professor at Syracuse University, and uh, I co-authored a paper with a junior faculty member by the name of Tom Selden, uh, which um, uh, did some empirical work on carbon emissions and economic development. And uh, the background to this was there was something called a Kuznets curve for uh, environmental externalities, and it turned out that as countries got richer, they decided also to get cleaner. And so a lot of uh, air pollutants, particulates, things like that tended to diminish in intensity as uh, countries got richer. And the question was, well, maybe this climate problem could solve itself if we just got rich enough and everyone had the, the affluence to take care of it. So we did the estimates. And the, the short answer is that there wasn't a hope that that was going to come to any scale to be sufficient to take care of things. Um, so that meant we were going to have to do something to change the mix of economic activity to uh, have fewer greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, I'm an economist. We're not particularly imaginative people. This is all like Casablanca, <laughs> round up the usual suspects. And uh, the, the usual suspects are what's the price of emission versus non-emission? And you want to change that relative price. And uh, there were there were two leading ways to do that, which on a blackboard were the same. Uh, one was a carbon tax. So you put a carbon tax at $50 a ton. Uh, and 
anything that has carbon embedded in it gets more expensive and people tend to substitute away from expensive items. They, they use less of them, find, find alternatives. They don't have carbon and you gradually reshape the composition of economic activity to be less greenhouse gas intensive. And as a result, you, you address the problem and you can just keep toggling that price till you get the outcome that you want. The flip side is you could also have a cap and trade system where you just have got the amount of emissions that you wanted. And it turned out it was $50 a ton would be the price of a permit. And on a blackboard, they're equivalent. You either set the right amount, have a price, or set the price, get the right amount, take your pick. In the real world, it turned out they weren't equivalent. Um, as part of my misbegotten past, I was the domestic policy advisor to the John McCain presidential campaign. Um, uh, Senator McCain proposed uh, an economy-wide cap and trade. Uh, so did uh, candidate Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought at the time this was going to be this phenomenal moment of uh, public relations where we would have a teachable uh, moment for the American public about the importance of climate policy and, and a debate about which was the best way to go. And it turns out that uh, that didn't happen. Presidential campaigns are about uh, what's different between the candidates. When something's the same, no one talks about it. So it wasn't talked about hardly at all. To my uh, amazement and chagrin, I learned a lot. But in the aftermath of the campaign, when Obama was elected, we did have the Waxman-Markey bill, um, which was ostensibly a cap-and-trade bill, although it was arguably the worst cap-and-trade bill ever written. Um, and it was a, just a disastrous uh, episode, both from the substance of the of the policy that was actually in it, and from the politics, cap and trade became a toxic brand, and there was no way any Republican was going to propose, propose a cap and trade in the foreseeable future. So we were down to a carbon tax. And, and so at that point, I became all in for a carbon tax is the right way to deal with this, uh, with this issue. And, and so, um, that, that's where I am. But, but at this point in time, there's some additional reasons why I've, I've come to really support it. Um, uh, first of all, for the for the listeners, I'm a believer in the gold standard of of carbon taxes. So that is a upstream carbon tax. You tax carbon where it enters the economy, coming out of a mine or as an import, whatever it may be, because it could be an import. It's border adjusted. You tax uh, carbon content of imports and you rebate the carbon content of exports, so you don't interfere with location decisions and trade. That's important. Um, you. Um, uh, don't solve the problem twice. So when you levy the carbon tax and you, you raise it to the right level, you get rid of those pieces of legislation that say you must regulate carbon. So Endangered Species Act, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, National Energy Policy Act. There's a, a slew of things that have had really expensive regulatory approaches to, to carbon and other greenhouse gases. So get rid of those. And finally, you do it in a revenue neutral fashion. You, you take the the revenue from the carbon tax, and you use that as the ability to cut other distorting taxes, like an economist lingo taxes on capital and labor. But in the real world, you'd, you'd cut the payroll tax. It's the biggest tax most people pay. You'd cut uh, income taxes, in, including corporation income taxes, uh, to, to keep their burdens relatively unchanged. And in doing so, this is the important thing that for this moment, you would not have any impairment to the growth prospects of the economy. You want to make sure that we continue to have an environment for robust economic growth and innovation. That's absolutely crucial for general standards of living. It'll be innovation will be very important in the climate world. But also, the world is not going to deal with this problem without great U.S. leadership. I think that's just the fact. And 
Americans are quite nervous about the prospect of doing something dramatic and having no one else do their part and shooting themselves in the foot in the process. So do something, a revenue neutral carbon tax that has good growth properties that you won't regret. And that way you can go forward, you know, forthrightly, do the right thing, try to get other countries on board and, and, and build the global coalition necessary to get this done. I think the carbon tax is the only thing that, that will do that. And so uh, although we've had some, you know, climate policy recently, the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm not a big fan of it. I still think this needs to get done. Well, a couple of things you said that I'm chomping at the bit to respond to. So when you talk about cap and trade and carbon tax on the chalkboard, just kind of down to their bare bones, being very similar. I think that where things kind of get, I'm not a lot sure if I'm allowed to say the word bastardized. I'm going to. And if we have to cut it, we'll cut it. It's your podcast. (laughs) It's my podcast. (laughs) So is in cap and trade, it was using the revenue from the allowances to fund pet projects and grow the government. And, you know, I worked for John Warner in 2008. We did a cap and trade bill with Lieberman. And I remember him looking at where all the allowance, the allowance allocations and just saying, wow, we're really growing the government. And it was sort of we were at a point he wasn't going to pull back at that stage. But later I felt like we really let the genie out of the bottle. So by the time Waxman Markey, which had way better prospects of moving than Lieberman Warner ever did, you know, they had almost no choice. They couldn't put back this idea that we were going to distribute these allowances or revenue from the allowances for pet projects. And with the carbon tax, what you said about um, it being revenue neutral, you could fall into the same trap, right? Where you take the revenue from the carbon tax and we're going to fund renewable energy incentives here and we're going to fund low income rebates here. And then it becomes like a very similar to what happened with the cap and trade bill being just laden with pet projects. And you hear that all the time, like, oh, we're going to have to do something for the poor if we do a, a carbon tax. And and I really you know, have a couple of thoughts about that. And thought number one is don't negotiate with yourself, right? The first proposal should be the right one, and that is the right one. Uh, the second is even in my proposal, the working poor are getting their payroll taxes cut. So there, there is this you know, uh, indirect impact. And, and there will be people who are not the working poor who could be impacted by higher retail prices for carbon intensive goods. That's a reality, but that's not the only part of their life. And we have lots of redistrib- methods of redistribution. You don't have to rely on just the carbon tax to solve all the problems. Let's right. use the carbon tax to solve the carbon problem and right. go right. elsewhere. Right. <laughs> exactly. So in a recent blog post, you talked about, um, and I know I have to look at my notes again to get it right because I want to get it right, trickle down climate policy and referring to the Inflation Reduction Act as that trickle down climate policy. So for our listeners, listeners, I will link this in the show notes. I will link Doug's um, blog post. What what do you mean by that? And, and how in your way does the IRA bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, not really get us at the problem and dangerously make people think that we are addressing the problem? Um. Uh, well, it, it, I, I wanted to make a point, and the point was that um, you know that the administration was touting Bidenomics and and just slamming supply side economics and trickle down theory, and how for all this these years these these evil ideas have been plaguing the American people. And the the poster child of that is you have a tax cut for a rich person or a big corporation, and and it's supposed to be trickle down to help the average person. And I thought to myself, well, where are those tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act going to go? Uh, they're going to go to big corporations. 
by and large, it's increasingly it turns out they're going to go to uh, large foreign corporations and um, and to affluent Americans. They're the ones who are buying EDs and things like that. So what's the difference? And 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 the right answer from an economist is there is no difference. What what matters is the ultimate impact of the policy, not what you use to start the chain of events. And and so that's how I think we should judge the IRA. And and I judge it harshly. I think it's um, uh, number one, it's a sectoral approach. And uh, I want to have an economy-wide upstream carbon tax because it makes the entire economy greener. It doesn't pick green things and non-green things and separate them and shut down the latter. It says, let's make everything a bit greener. And in the process, you will do the least cost abatement first. Right? The carbon tax shows up and, and it's five bucks. You'll do the, the cheap $5 things. And then if it's 10 bucks, you'll do the $10 things, wherever they may be in the economy. Yeah. If you do something sector by sector, you don't do that. You might do the cheapest thing in that sector, but you might be missing some really low cost abatement elsewhere. And so it's it's designed to be inefficient to begin with. So that's sort of step number one. Step number two is that it tries to bribe everyone into doing things. I mean, it's it's all it's all subsidies and, and refundable tax credits. And um, you know, we don't have enough taxpayer money to bribe people to the the climate uh policy we need. So it's starting down the wrong way. And in terms of growing the government, these programs will never go away now. This is the greatest, uh, you know, seed for rent seeking that has ever been sown. And, uh, you know, I, I, it just makes my head hurt. Um, long after these sectors are have achieved what is the sensible economic amount of climate re- reduction, if we pray, maybe that happens, they won't stop existing. Yeah, and we'll, we will have an extraordinary, expensive, and inefficient, very large government, and so you know that's we're really getting off on the wrong foot. And my biggest concern, which I mentioned to you prior to the show, but I'll repeat for the listeners, is that the administration is making a, a great show of what a wonderful thing done, the greatest investment ever in climate. The American people should know we've done this, we've done this huge thing. But what happens when you roll the clock forward five years and nothing's really changed on climate? And they say, well, we've done the biggest thing ever, we've done the right thing, and it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, let's just forget it. We're not going to do anything. Right. Right. That's the biggest fear that they have right. really, really, really oversold this and we will rue the day they even started. Right. Because you give um, fuel to both people that don't want to see anything done while well, they tried and they failed. And those right. who maybe you're feeling a little indifferent or maybe yeah. maybe they care a little, but they aren't able to buy the EV or take advantage of the solar tax credit or any of those things. And so, yeah, there becomes a a displacency, especially when you're looking at a problem that feels so overwhelming. Yes. And, you know, we're looking at it this summer, the heat records that are being broken. And then you have some of the economic issues like insurance companies pulling out of Florida. Who's going to be able to buy a home or insure a home in Florida in five years or 10 years? Um, so, you know, there are there are so many impacts and they, they go across the spectrum of our economy. They're not just this isn't just an environmental issue. This isn't just about cleaning the air, right? And it is also as much adaptation as it's now abatement. I mean, we've waited a long time to get started. And so I I think quietly, one of the best things that Congress and the administration may have done on the climate front is the big um, uh, infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. Because if the localities are thinking about it, they're not just going to replace the infrastructure they have where they have it. They're going to be looking around saying, you know, this is going to be underwater in a a couple of years. Let's build this somewhere else. And we will have done some abatement through the infrastructure efforts. I right. hope so. We hope, right? <laughs> but 
as a as a reformed Corps of Engineers um, policy staffer, I don't know how much faith I have in <laughs> deciding to do things differently than you did them in the past. <laughs> Fair enough. My pet peeve in the entire universe, which I cannot describe why, I don't know how this happens, <laughs> the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, which drives me crazy because if we even tried to price that insurance more sensibly, we wouldn't be building things in climate sensitive locations and and a lot of real damages would be avoided. Uh, but, you know, Taylor <laughs> Swift refuses to take a position on the NFIP, and so we're stuck with it. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the next album will have a song. She'll have yeah, to, like, maybe. get creative <laughs> with the lyrics there. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Doug, I know pricing carbon is a huge lift on Capitol Hill. Obviously, you've been working on this for a long time. And um, so people like Bob Inglis, our executive director and others. What I'm hopeful for right now is talks about the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. How do you feel about kind of stripping that, you know, sort of the border adjustment part of pricing carbon and doing that as a standalone? And do you think that if that happens and it's successful, it could open the door for a future price on carbon. Well, I'd like to believe that, but I don't think I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you you look at Europe, um, Europe has a, a cap and trade system. They have a trading system for mm-hmm. uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and they've adopted a CBAM mechanism. Mm-hmm. But it taxes imports to Europe that, that doesn't rebate exports. Mm-hmm. It's not a genuine border adjustment. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with... Um, that kind of a mechanism is that it's it's protection against goods sold in Europe that have some carbon content, but it but it's not really a climate policy. It's just a protectionist in the name of climate policy. It'd be pretty easy for a lot of people in the U.S. to adopt that right now, and that there have been some proposals I've seen that are that. Yeah, it's really important that it be rebated uh, rebated on exports because then you don't have the incentive to produce abroad. Like if you produce it in the U.S. and you pay a carbon tax, mm-hmm. and then you export it. It gets rebated. You're happy to produce in the U.S. and export. If you produce it in the U.S. and you sell it abroad and you pay the tax no matter what, well, why not put it abroad where there's no tax? And so I I think it's important that you get both sides of it, and that won't be protectionist, and I don't think it'll sell as a standalone. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think we may, you know, we may have to do the heavy lift, which is a domestic price on carbon, and it will be necessary to border adjust it as a matter of the politics. There's no way around that, so we should be prepared for that. That's not that's not a big deal to me. I think the the good news about this debate is the fear of a of a carbon tax, the fear of a price on carbon was always it's going to kill the 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 goose that laid the old eggs, going to kill the American economy, we're not going to grow, and we've just accumulated a lot of evidence that's not true. A well-designed carbon tax does not threaten that. Right. And conservatives who should have been the most open to a carbon tax, quite frankly, because they believe in the power of markets and the power of price incentives to drive innovation and reshape the American economy, which is what it has done since we were essentially a glorified high school hockey team in 1776. You know, we've become the largest, most powerful economy the world's ever seen because we allowed prices to reshape it from an agrarian to then an industrial, now increasingly a service economy. That was all good. Well, that's that's what a carbon tax would do. And you should have a lot of faith that we'll do it and do it in a, in a very efficient way. I think conservatives have come around to that viewpoint. They've seen what a big government approach is going to look like, and and that can't be the solution. So this is a better moment for the carbon tax than in the past. 
Well, I, uh, I appreciate your optimism and I hope that, uh, I hope you're right. It's, you know, I know that sometimes the, the T word tax can be a little toxic on Capitol Hill and, no question. No question. Um, you know, what I, what I don't want to see is us waiting and using it. I mean, I guess we get it on the books, how we get it on the books, but you know, we d- tend to wait and save and do big things when we're faced with an emergency. Right. Right. And it would be nice if we could let the two sides of the two sides of the aisle could sort of roll, slow their roll a little bit and come together to do this before it's a reaction to something. Because, you know, those policies seem, it see it feels more rushed when we're doing something in response to an emergency than when we're having the well thought out process and genuine hearings. And oh, my poor son is, um, has an internship watching and summarizing congressional hearings this summer and he keeps texting me like these people don't even ask questions they just state their statement for five minutes and then they ask one yes or no question at the end of their time i'm like welcome to congress <laughs> yes. yes um well i i do hope that that we we get to see something you know it it's important for people to re, to remember that the politics of this are very important like you mm-hmm. I've always believed you just don't get politicians to forget the politics and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You have to make good policy, good politics. Yeah. So a revenue neutral carbon tax is a tax reform. It says we're going to raise this tax, lower that tax, reshape our tax structure. And for that reason, those who signed the Americans for Tax Reform pledge, you can do that. The pledge does not preclude tax reform. It doesn't want net tax increases. This isn't yeah. a net tax increase. And so... If if the most conservative tax organization in America can approve of this, that's a pretty safe place to start. Yeah. I'm going to quote that from the future. You have to make good policy, good politics. That yes. is a motto okay. that we should all be living by. <laughs> uh, and it's it's hard. And yeah. for that reason, if you're you know, if you're a policy person and you bat a hundred, you go to the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's that's yeah. extraordinary. It's just it's hard to do. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the American Action um, Forum, what do you do there and how can they find out about your work? Well, it's easy to see what we do. We're at AmericanActionForum.org, one long word. Um, I built AAF uh, in the model of a campaign policy shop where the candidate is center-right ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are interested in the the waterfront of domestic and economic policy. We don't do any social issues. Uh, we we aren't smart enough to do international affairs, national security, defense. Um, but we, we, we cover all of the domestic and economic policy issues. And like uh, a campaign, we work on whatever is relevant that day. So what's going on in Congress, what's happening in the agencies. We're interested in uh, conveying our findings in English to non-specialists. Uh, we don't want to just talk with those like us, not mm-hmm. writing for the think tanks. Uh, and you have to be cognizant of the political lay of the land. We are unapologetically market-oriented center-right folks. And we want to make the argument from the point of view of those who favor center-right solutions. And so uh, that, that's what you do in a campaign, right? You sort of work for the candidate and you try to promote the candidacy um, by, by conveying your stuff in English to non-specialists, the voters. We're trying to do that every day and just to, to push these ideas forward. And in the process, hopefully take some things that are good ideas and make them policy. And, and so I want to try to get things done. Were you inspired by your um, work in the 2008 campaign? I love what you said earlier about how when the candidates agree on something, then it doesn't come up in the campaign. Right. Speaking to um, Senator, the late Senator McCain and, and then Senator Obama, who 
did have very similar climate positions. So then, you know, you would think, and it did come up in the debates, but it wasn't a central point of either of their campaigns because Correct. you've got to show where you're different. And yeah. this really shocked me. I, I actually wrote a book on the history of the politics of climate change, which will be out next year. And, you know, Obama almost voted against McCain-Lieberman in 2005 as a freshman senator because he thought it would make it harder to run against McCain in 2008. And he saw that Mike McCain was probably the heir apparent to run on the Republican side. And I thought, wow, that is really many chess moves ahead, but also would have been incredibly like, well, I don't know what it would have been. That bill was, you know, failed dramatically. But if you ever thought Barack Obama wanted to be a senator, there's the proof that that was never his plan. His plan was the president of the United States. <laughs> anyway, I'm sort of seeing the founding of AF, AAF as your personal therapy at the time. We want to elevate ideas no and question. treating the ideas as a campaign. I love how you framed that. Um, I did it because I did learn at the White House, at the Congressional Budget Office on the campaign, that that's what I was doing. Every day I was trying to do policy research, options, advice, whatever it might be. In English to non-specialists, you worked on what was happening. I thought, well, there must be people interested in that who aren't my political superiors, and then I can I can do this for the American public. I mean, yeah. they don't, you know, re- read white papers on uh, offshore drilling, and when a rig blows up in the Gulf, they want to know. All right, well, what are my options? Like, you know, I'm a market-oriented guy. I don't want to see everything just go big government. What, what, what should we do here? So, it struck me th- those were the teachable moments. That's what we should be doing. We're doing public education in the end. That's how we're going to do it. And it was good therapy, right? You know, I, I will freely admit we had just lost. I was not happy about losing. Yeah. So I threw myself into to this enterprise as a way to do that. I also needed health insurance, so I had to start. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, listeners, if you want to learn more about Doug's work, it's AmericanActionForum.org. And as he has said, he takes these issues and puts them into English for people that don't want to read a whole technical white paper. And I think that is an art that is lost here in Washington, D.C., right? It's like you get a gold star for making something sound more complicated than it actually is. Well, my my, my the real lesson I got was I thought think tank life would consist of clever solutions to complicated problems. And, and that's very little of it. Most of what we do. It's just to explain how things work. Yeah. Like, how does a cap and trade work? How does a carbon tax work? You know, how big would it have to be? What what are what are magnitudes of different, you know, uh, estimates? And I'm the the king of the heroic estimate because I think it's useful to know whether something is a ten, hundred, or trillion dollar um, uh, problem. You know, knowing the order of magnitude tells you something. So you know, I've had people we estimated the cost of the Green New Deal and. Did we get that right? No, of course not. We missed the free college. But I mean, that, that you know, there was a lot <laughs> in there. But it, the, the point was, this is an enormous undertaking. You need yeah. to know that. And yeah. and um, so we, we try to do that for people who don't spend their days doing this. This is what we do. And then yeah. try to explain them, this is big. It's worth paying attention to. Here's what appear to be the options. Um, and, and I find it very satisfying. Well, thank you so much for your work and thank you for your time and being on the show. And again, um, satisfying that uh, that itch that some of our listeners had to have an economist come on and talk to us. Really appreciate everything you've done over your career and the work you continue to do. Well, that's very kind. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to come back.
Welcome to season seven. Welcome, welcome, welcome to new listeners. If uh, this is your return to the Eco Right Speaks, welcome back. We all hope you're having a great summer. If this is your first time listening to the Eco Right Speaks podcast, we're incredibly excited that you have decided to tune us in and give us a listen because we come to you with a new episode every single Tuesday. But that's after a little hiatus, a, a brief little break in the uh, month of July, Chels. I hope you had a uh, nice few weeks off. We didn't, of course, our work didn't stop here, but our podcast work just took a very quick, quick uh, summer siesta. Yeah, it gave us a little bit of time to focus on um, being really intentional about what um, I almost called them witnesses, <laughs> what guests we want to have on this season. And also to catch up on the other things that we do, you know, we both wear a lot of hats in this organization. So great to be able to focus some energy on some other stuff. And um, it was also equally wonderful to get back in the saddle and have that conversation with Doug Holtzikin, a first timer on the show, which is kind of crazy given he's really a carbon tax OG. Mm-hmm. He was you know, preaching the benefits of a carbon tax back in 2009. I remember when I was working on the Waxman Markey bill as a consultant. And so he's long time been in the revenue neutral border adjustable carbon tax boat with us and with Bob. And he, he brings to that, um, that debate, his experience as an economist. So just, you know, very well respected in right of center circles and great to have him on the show. Yeah, connecting a few old dots here. Um, you know, Doug Holtzikin, you said, has been around for a while, been OG when it comes to the revenue-neutral carbon tax world. And uh, a former colleague of mine in Bob's office, Chris Holt, uh, left when we were all looking for things to do after we lost uh, you know, primary back in 2010. Uh, Chris Holt, one of my colleagues, uh, very, very – Good, knowledgeable, one of the best when it comes to healthcare policy, and he went and uh, moved over to work for the American Action Forum. And Doug, uh, there is his, now he's is the VP of Policy and Federal Affairs uh, for uh, the Alliance for Health Policy. Uh, there, so, so another connection in, especially in podcast land, is mm-hmm. that um, two-time guest Katrina Rourke also worked at she AFF did. before she went over to the uh, to the Climate Leadership Council. So. Um, lots of, lots of great connections and, you know, he just, you know, brings such a sharp, um, mind to this issue. And so it was great to kick off our season with an economist. This was something that you, our listeners requested when Angela did a poll at, um, in between seasons on what you wanted to hear. We had a lot of requests for an economist and I think Doug might've been our first economist on the show. So, very happy to have had him, and um, we're going to keep taking those suggestions as we move through season seven, which, as Price said, hits your inbox or hits hits the airwaves every Tuesday. We take the week of Thanksgiving off because we know you're busy making pies or traveling to see friends and family, and then we conclude our season before the winter break. So between now and the end of the year, pretty much without fail, you will hear from us on Tuesdays. 
Yeah, and you can hear from us uh, with the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. You can download and have it delivered right to your smartphone, your tablet, your desktop. Uh, those are two of the most popular ways that you can tune in and get a new episode every Tuesday of the Eco Right Speaks, led by the esteemed Chelsea Henderson, my colleague, when she has got a lot cooked up uh, over, especially for the next several weeks, as we've got August, we've got hurricane season to butter our bread, and hopefully it's not going to get too buttered with uh, storms, but that remains to be seen. But we will butter your bread with a lot of great guests here over the next month the month of August, Chels. I am really looking forward. We have some um, people I've long admired who are coming on the show who will be first time guests. And so it's really exciting. It's always exciting to have old friends come back too. So there'll definitely be some of those. And, um, you know, sharing is caring. So if you have a friend who you think would love our podcast, please definitely recommend it to someone. We are always looking to make new friends. Without a doubt. And we'd like to make some more new friends. Uh, if you have not signed up to stand with us at Republican.org, we would love for you to do so. Republican.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds. We don't spam you. We send out a lot of great quality information led by Chelsea's outstanding weekend review that comes to your inbox usually every Friday afternoon that's kind of a wrap-up and what happened in the news when it comes to climate, the environment on Fridays. So you can look for that in your inbox. Plus, we send out poll questions. We look for other things. We want you to interact with us as much as we want to interact with you. So please, we would love for you to stand with us. Once again, at republican.org forward slash join. And I'd like to shout out a couple quick New members that we had sign up to stand with us just recently, Joe J. right here in South Carolina, Cindy W. in Colorado, Christopher M. in Texas, Homa T. in Indiana, and finally Richard C. in New Jersey. Appreciate them for standing with us. There is a power in numbers, and we need you, especially if you are a conservative. We would love for you to stand with us, and you can do that online. You know, I'm just going to connect dot for somebody. So if you like the podcast, you'll like We Can Review. It's as simple as that. And that is really, you get We Can Review, you get um, the poll questions. We just um, talked about Angela pulled our list or pulled our readers, I should say, on what um, podcast guests they wanted, what content they wanted. Uh, so you get a monthly poll and it's, you know, you don't get an email every day and we don't sell your list, your name to a list, because that is annoying. And those people suck that do that. So just, just join us. We're nice. The water's warm. <laughs> just do it. I don't want to steal a trademark phrase from another company, but guys, people, friends, listeners, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> All right. What do we have coming up next week, Chelsea? Coming up next week, another first-time guest, which sort of surprises me, um, from the uh, the newly minted CEO of the American Conservation Coalition, Danny Butcher Franz, is um, going to talk to us about her vision as she takes over this organization that was um, that she did help found, but was led by the one and only Benji Backer for the last six years. And actually, this is kind of fun. Price the date that. Danny and I recorded 
mm-hmm. marked their six year birthday, their six year anniversary. Oh, wow. And so she was actually feeling a little nostalgic, a little weepy about that because that's a big deal. As you and I know, you know, starting a nonprofit is no <clears throat> easy business. And for these, um, you know, Gen Zers who are right out of college to do that and be successful is really an accomplishment. And so she takes over. She also talks about the um, the summit that they recently held. They had a lot of good eco writers at that summit. So it was a wonderful conversation and looking forward to uh, sharing that with our listeners next week. Can't wait for that. We're so excited to be back to spend the rest of the summer with you, spend the rest of 2023 with you is this is the launch, the kickoff of season seven of the Eco Right Speaks podcast. We got six full seasons. If you want to go back and listen and check out any of the guests that we've had over the previous six seasons, you can do so. But we have got a lot coming at you the rest of the year and this month. We appreciate you tuning us in. And our loyal listeners, you have been with us for a long time. And for the newbies, we are excited to have you. Michelle, until next week. Do it again. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.